um, I, I, I feel as if we're all struggling yeah. to say something, to do mm-hmm. something. And luckily, as a, as a writer um, who has a chance to get published and who, um, and who has been able to write about this also for the New York Times, uh, specifically on this story, um, I'm, I'm in a very lucky position. Mm-hmm. And in my day job as a, as a government lawyer for the state, I'm also lucky to be able to partake in in um, in battling some of the things, some of the policies of this of this particular president. Yeah. You're listening to Stories But Shorter. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on Dan Olivius. The Great Wall. Rogelio stood in the long line that snaked from the detention center's barracks to the lookout point at the other end of the compound. He shifted from foot to foot, the heat making him perspire and feel lightheaded. He was a smart boy, one of the best students in Ms. Becetta's fifth grade class, so he figured that even though the cool winter weather still made San Diego's evenings chilly enough to need a sweater, the lack of circulation combined with the body heat of thousands of children conspired to make the detention center's air heavy and almost suffocating. The guards strolled slowly up and down the lines in an attempt to keep some order. But the children had become so numb to seeing the green-clad, rifle-bearing men and women that the best the guards could hope for was an organized chaos as the two lines, one for boys, the other girls, inched forward to the dual lookout points. Rogelio could see his older sister, Marisol, directly to his right in the girl's line. She comforted a younger girl who wept silently into Marisol's shoulder. Rogelio didn't like crying in front of his sister, but right then he wished Marisol had an arm around him whispering, Don't worry, it'll be okay. We'll see Mama and Papa soon. Above the din of the other children, Rogelio could make out the recurring audio loop of the president's voice blurring over the intercoms that dotted the ceiling like so many menacing dark stars. He could almost recite those words from memory. I will build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me and I'll build them very inexpensively. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will make Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. Rogelio had never seen the wall, except online and on TV. He thought it was ugly, even though the president had it decorated with an ornate gold paint that swirled in strange designs along the wall's top and bottom edges. Between the borders of the gold paint were bas-relief scenes from the president's life, beginning from his childhood, through school, beginning careers in business and television, running for president, the swearing-in, and the president signing executive orders. The children who had already visited the lookout points, which were simply large rooms with the far wall made of bulletproof plexiglass, said that it would have been easier to set up computer screens to say goodbye to their parents. But, instead, the president's executive order explicitly prohibited the expenditure of funds for such niceties, and instead 
ordered that the family's farewell would be soundless without the aid of microphones with children on one side of the plexiglass, the parents on the other. Once in the lookout points, one for boys, the other for girls, as decreed by the president, the children would wave to their parents who would be allowed to wave back. After a humane period of 30 seconds, the children would be directed out of the lookout point and back to their barracks to pack up their meager belongings for a new life with a relative or adopted family. Since these children had been born in the country, they were citizens, but their parents had entered the United States without documents, most with the assistance of well-paid coyotes. So, after the silent goodbyes, the parents would be ushered into a large black bus that would whisk them off to one of the reinforced gates in the Great Wall and back to Mexico, even if they had come from a different Latin American country. Neat, clean, fast, and beautiful. As Rogelio inched closer to the boy's lookout point, his heart began to beat hard in his small chest. He willed himself not to cry to be strong, to show his parents that he and his sister would be okay, living with his aunt in Los Angeles, who had become a United States citizen under President Reagan's 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act. The guard's loud next broke Rogelio's reverie. He walked into the lookout point, stepped up to the thick cloudy plexiglass. Rogelio squinted, about 30 yards of open terrain separated the two detention centers and their respective lookout points. Where were his parents? Oh, there. He could discern his father, who was a hearty, large man, but who now looked so small. His father wiped his eyes with a crumpled white handkerchief and embraced Rogelio's mother with his right arm. Rogelio's sister must have already seen their parents, since she had been just a bit farther ahead in the girl's line. He wondered if Marisol had cried, but Rogelio promised himself that he would not. He waved to his parents as he forced a smile that looked more like a pained grimace. His parents waved back, also forcing smiles, but Rogelio could see that their faces were shining with tears. Before a guard directed his parents toward the exit, Rogelio let out a sob, his chest shaking without control. He told himself, don't cry, don't cry. But now, Rogelio's tears fell freely from his eyes as a guard put a hand on the boy's shoulder and gently guided him away. Oh, man. Thank you so much for sharing that story. You're welcome. Um, and I also noticed uh, it's the last story of your book. So I feel like that was a deliberate choice, yes? It was. What happened was the book was already written and sitting mm-hmm. with the publisher and was being designed. Uh, the galleys were being prepared. And then Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. And as with many people, uh, in particular, I think people of Mexican descent, mm-hmm. um, um, it was heartbreaking. It was crushing. It was basically um, a repudiation of who we were. Mm-hmm. And so I felt um, that even though I, I do touch on issues of racism and bigotry and other, other things, I don't always deal with such issues in my stories. Um, I felt like as a Chicano writer, I had to do something. Mm-hmm. 
And so the thing that kept on coming into my mind was what would happen if, in fact, the Great Wall was built um, and his zero uh, tolerance policy became, you know, a reality. Yeah. And um, what happened was um, after I wrote the story, I showed it to the publisher and they said we could include it and we agreed to put it at the end. And then the book was published and then the review started coming out and many of the reviews, like Kirk's reviews, noted that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the family separation started happened. to happen. Oh my God. And so I had already written for New York Times a few years before and so I reached out to the editor I had worked with and I said, I had published this story um, and I felt like it had it's happening now and mm-hmm. I wanted to write a piece for the New York Times mm-hmm. and they said we'd love to see it. So I wrote it, um, I worked with the editor um, on it and then it was published on June 19th of this year and they titled it uh, The Dystopia is Here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was basically trying to show how... Um, in many ways, um, uh, what ha- what has happened with um, his immigration policy, um, and and really the humanitarian crisis that he's created um, through his zero tolerance policy, um, um, was the logical outcome of his immigration platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, I feel as though as a writer, particularly being a writer of color, um, I I felt like I had sort of a duty to to say something, yeah. um, whether or not I would do anything. I had, you know, who knows what words will do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as we know, um, governments, you know, they like to they, what, kill the poets, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and and, and um, basically people who, who write, um, actors and comedians and mm-hmm. artists, those are the people who tend to be shut down by totalitarian regimes and uh, we mm-hmm. still have a voice here mm-hmm. um, though unfortunately um, the voice sometimes is mocked and um, it's called fake news and is uh, right. challenged in such a way that um, mm-hmm. we just have to keep on speaking up speaking up yeah exactly so yeah oh man um, yeah because uh, when I read the story I was wondering when you wrote it because it you know like there is like this 1984 like brave new world kind of dystopia right. to it but then at the same time it felt so real like right. like yeah because i obviously i read it um after all the camps and everything so yeah it was it, it just like i don't know it's terrifying <laughs> what's funny is i i have read this story um to audiences and mm. um people laugh at my description of the wall mm-hmm. um but then at the end there's That's no so laughter real. whatsoever because it, it, the clownishness of the wall actually fits with how he likes to self-promote mm-hmm. and in truth i have no doubt that if mm-hmm. he could build a wall like the one i described he would oh yeah i mean he yeah oh, we could talk yes. i mean again you didn't even mention his name i think no, in I, or did i did not get, i don't think I, no i don't, I don't think, think do, i mentioned right? trump i say the president yeah you say reagan at one point but yeah i mentioned but, reagan because 1986 right mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. i mean 
you know, what's interesting is um, I didn't vote for George W. Bush, mm-hmm. um, uh, but the one thing that he was good on was immigration. Mm-hmm. And it was actually Senate Republicans that destroyed his, his um, proposed immigration bill mm. that actually had more heart to it than what we're seeing right now. Yeah. It wasn't perfect, but at least it was better. And he was kind of following in, in the footsteps of Reagan. Yeah. Uh, someone else I didn't vote for. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's sad to think... Uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a fan of George W. Bush, but now the reality that we're in, it's like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't so bad. It was bad, but not as bad as what yeah. we're suffering through now. now. It's like, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, I don't know, the idealist in me is always hoping that we're like progressing and becoming more equal and open. And this is, yeah, the past two years has really like popped my bubble to see like just how strong the other side is and angry and uh, just misguided and right. it's awful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I noticed in the story is that the guards, uh, they seem peaceful. Like they are, they kind of are in it and seeing like how terrible they have to follow these orders to separate their families um, so that seemed like a choice on your part to make it that they weren't like, you know, hailing Trump or, you know, like right. being cruel. It was just like right. they were passive, kind of like, um, like when the, like Nazi uprising and everything, the, you know, you think of the right. families that kind of just allow it to happen. Right. Um, there's a wonderful writer named Luis Alberto Urrea. Mm-hmm. Um, who um, I've had the chance to to work with on various occasions. He wrote a book that was um, came out a few years ago called The Devil's Highway, mm-hmm. and it was a finalist for I believe the I want to say the Pulitzer. I'm trying to remember which major prize. Um, sure, let's just say the Pulitzer. <laughs> I think it was a Pulitzer or National Book Award. One one of the really big prizes. Big one, it yeah. was a finalist, and <laughs> and what it was, it was he's a fiction writer and a poet, but it it was a uh, nonfiction book, um, uh, focusing on um, a group of undocumented immigrants who um, died in the desert, mm. um, and um, he spent a lot of time with immigration agents and. Um, that book really shows the human side of people who take that kind of work. And a lot of them are actually uh, Latinos mm. um, who speak Spanish. And, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, to demonize them, I think, would be too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many of them, it's, it's a job. Yeah. For, for a lot of them, they are not um, intentionally inflicting Mm-hmm. cruel you know cruel acts upon people they mm-hmm. are they are following the orders mm-hmm. um it's it's um you made you made the connection to uh, nazi germany uh, my wife is jewish and i converted um 30 years ago mm-hmm. and i've written for the jewish journal and i've and i've i've read um uh, memoirs uh, from the holocaust and i've written about um those memoirs and there are stories of of um, Nazi, um, um, you know, uh, guards um, um, allowing their human side to come out. There's there was a memoir I read. I, f- I forget who wrote it, but um, the woman who wrote it survived because um, she was in one of the ghettos, and the Nazis came to and started to empty out the, the buildings, and mm-hmm. and um, um, she hid in a room with a picture of her mother, and a Nazi guard came in and he looks at her. And he looks at the picture and he sees 
you know, basically a child with a picture of her mom. Yeah. And he goes like this and he yells all clear mm. and closes the door. Because of that, she eventually escapes and she survives. All the other children and family members yeah. were sent off to camps. So, um, you know, that's a horrible story in some ways, yeah. uh, but in other ways it also shows that sometimes we don't lose our humanity. Yeah. And sometimes we can maintain what it means to be um, um, a person. Yeah. <sighs> Heavy. I'm so, I actually write <laughs> funny so, stuff, too. I you know. know. <laughs> I know. It's so important, though, that when you, like, yeah, this is such a good story to share. And I think, you know, I think so many people just feel like, powerless and like it just really sucks so you know it's i think it's nice to have a little hope yeah exactly yeah. i i actually i do have a question i wanted to mm-hmm. know um so what has have you had a lot of responses back from i guess people of like latin american descent who have either read the story or other latin american writers who have read the story um, I've had the chance to teach classes like UC Davis has had me come uh, mm-hmm. when they've, te- they've, um, uh, they've taught my um, book. Professor Maceo Montoya um, teaches a Chicano um, uh, narrative class. And I have to tell you the response from the students in particular, particularly students who are first gen college students and up at UC Davis, many of the kids are uh, children of farm workers. Um, the reaction has been very strong and mm. and and the people i know who are threatened by by trump's um immigration policies people who are undocumented and people who or you know people whose parents are undocumented um um there's a palpable fear um there's an appreciation for reading something that connects with them and lets them know they're not alone mm-hmm. and i think literature can do that for people um uh, so there is an appreciation. Reviewers really connected with the story and really talk about it. And um, I, what I would love to see is uh, maybe someone do an anthology of um, of literature um, that um, ha- has been created in response to the, to this mm-hmm. presidency, um, because uh, um, I, I I feel as if we're all struggling, yeah, to say something, to do mm-hmm. something. And luckily, as a, as a writer. Um, who has a chance to get published and who um, and who has been able to write about this also for the New York Times uh, specifically on this story um, I'm I'm in a very lucky position mm-hmm. and in my day job as a, as a government lawyer for the state I'm also lucky to be able to partake in in um, in battling some of the things some of the policies of this of this particular president Stories But Shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Campfire. <laughs>